Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we're gathering this summer on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays for one service at 10. Come early for a light breakfast at 9.15. We look forward to connecting with you. The parents inside of us, I want you to know that last week, Janin and the boys and I, we traveled to Ohio, and I did not once use a paper boarding pass. I had asked for help a few times with my phone, but we got there. It was really good. I'm so excited. How about uh, worshiping in a full room? Woo! It's great to be together. Great to meet you over breakfast. Uh, We're excited about this summer and what God's doing. You know, one of the things that we're really, really excited about this summer, we're calling it the Summer of Neighboring. And every week we are reminding you and encouraging you and praying for you that this would be a summer where you move towards your neighbors. We have this rhythm that we call neighboring. And uh, neighboring means praying for your neighbors by name um, uh, at least once a week. And then secondly, it means engaging them in conversation whenever you see them outside in a non-stalking sort of way. But you're always ready because life unfolds one conversation at a time. And surface conversations can become serious conversations, can become spiritual conversations. So to our neighbors, we're going. And then lastly, when you feel the timing is right and the Spirit of God says, you know, it's time, invite them. Invite them to your deck and patio, your kitchen table. Invite them to events that we have here at Waterstone, like Sunday mornings now and sharing breakfast together. There's this green card out in the hub you can pick up at the info barrel with all the neighboring environments. The next one, we're having a brewery night in August. And then we're having socials after our Saturday night services. So just a lot of uh, places where you can bring a neighbor and they can have a positive experience experience uh, at Waterstone. So, uh, neighbor hard and neighbor on this summer. We're excited. I'm really excited to be here this morning. We're starting a new series about family. You know, Denver is a place where a lot of us are transplants and we don't have our natural family here. And so we're really committed to Waterstone being a place of family. In fact, you know, right, that the main metaphor to speak of the church in the New Testament is the word family. We We want to talk about parents and children today. This is part one. Next week, Paul's going to talk about part two, actually raising children. Today, we're going to talk more about adult children and adult parents. But um, I want us to see that Jesus has a priority of bringing healing to families. You know, right? He knows we need it. I remember being at a Promise Keepers events. Some of you older in the room will remember this great men's movement that happened actually out of Boulder, Colorado a few years back. And hearing a pastor in Boulder by the name of James Ryle, he got up and spoke to thousands of men at Folsom Field and he told his story. And he said that by the age of two, his father had left. By the age of seven, he was an orphan. By the age of 19, he was in jail. And then he said through a series of events, he ended up randomly meeting his father who had abandoned the family, but he was a welder. And they they met, and the father asked James Ryle, what prison were you in? And he told him the name of the prison, and James Ryle's father said, I built that prison. I worked on that prison. And then James Ryle, with this eloquent line, said, I lived in a prison built by my father. I remember listening to a... um, 
a radio interview. Now, some of you in the room, you younger element, that's a, that was a technology we had a, a few years back, radio. It was a radio interview with uh, Brennan Manning, who's this priest and writer, uh, and then a singer named Michael Card. And they were sharing together their most powerful prayer experiences. And Brennan Manning told this story about giving a talk, and after the talk, an old elderly nun came up. And she just poured her heart out to Brennan Manning. And she said, you know, by the age of five, my father was uh, abusing me. And by the age of 12, I'd lost everything that a 12-year-old girl innocently would hold dear. I'd lost it all. And I began to hate my father. And I hated uh, men. And most of all, I hated myself. I felt so unworthy. And she would share with Brennan that even when in her nunly duties, she would have to take communion. She only did it if her superiors told her she had to because she didn't want to be that close to a man. She lived in a prison built by her father. Now, for most of us in the room, uh, I hope we don't have that severe of stories to tell, but yet in each of our journeys, I am sure we have wounds and marks left on us from our childhood. We have deficits, that things we've never received from our childhood that still today cause pain. And you know in our culture, that's a very common theme. Uh, I'm always kind of keeping my eye on these sorts of things in our culture. And uh, not long ago, I, I read a, a memoir by a uh, author named Paul Oster. It's called The Invention of Solitude. And in there he tells this story about his father. He said, it was not like my father disliked me. It was just that he seemed distracted, unable to look in my direction. And more than anything else, I wanted him to take notice of me. And then Oster recalls a trivial moment that, uh, you know, very trivial, but just suffused with meaning that he carried with him for the rest of his life. He said, when the family once went to a crowded restaurant on a Sunday and we had to wait for our table, my father took me outside, produced a tennis ball. And then in parentheses, he said, from where? I don't know. He got the tennis ball. He put a penny on the sidewalk and proceeded to play a game with me, hit the penny with the tennis ball. In retrospect, nothing could have been more trivial. And yet the fact that I had been included, that my father had casually asked me to share his boredom with him, nearly crushed me with happiness. How many of you have ever heard of a movie director named Wes Anderson? All right, there's, okay, good. I'm, I'm surprised. He's got kind of a cult following. My two sons got me onto him. He has these movies like uh, Life Aquatic and um, the Royal Tannenbaums. So if Paul Oster's in literature talking about the, the wounds and deficits of family, Wes Anderson, every movie he makes, if you think about it, is about father wounds and father deficits and uh, the, the hunger of children for family. In my favorite movie of his, The Royal Tenenbaums, there's this scene. After a horrible accident, the, the scheming Royal Tenenbaum father, who is played by Gene Hackman, approaches his son Chaz with a Dalmatian a replacement for the dog Chaz and his sons have just lost. They just lost. We are touched by his confession. The dad says, I'm sorry I let you down, Chaz. All of you. I've been trying to make it up to you. Thank you, Chaz, the son replies. We've had a rough year, dad. And then dad says, I know you have, Chassie. Every once in a while, even through Royal Tenenbaum's narcissist, 
narcissism. He sees his children, and that's what helps his children thrive. A father seeing his children. So today, we are gathering to talk about parents and children and children and parents and how Jesus wants to heal families. And I want to, all the kids in the room, uh, I just want you to know that last night I did preach this sermon and it was less than two hours long. <laughs> so just stay with me. We'll get there. In all seriousness, I want you to give you a code word that when I mention the word adoption in a few moments, that's when the sermon is getting close to the end and you'll want to get your communion cups. Now, if you didn't get one coming in, you can just get up at any time during the service and go out and get your communion cups. But we're going to actually go to the table of Jesus and spend time with our Heavenly Father this morning. And that's how we're going to end our time together. So you'll be listening for that word, adoption. We're going to see this morning how Jesus wants to heal families and bring parents to children and children to parents. And he's going to talk about the purpose of family, and then God's going to show us the plan for families, and then he's going to show us the power for families, how families work. So let's talk about the purpose of family. And we're going to put on there up on the, on the screen a verse that you probably have heard before. In fact, I'd like all the children in the room, that's probably 18 and under. I know some of you adults will want to jump in, but don't. Uh, let's go 18 and under. Would you out loud, and for all the adults in the room, would you read this verse with me out loud together? Let's do it. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This is the purpose of family. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk about what it means to honor. It's a very interesting word, honor. We'll talk about that more near the end. But I want us to see the purpose of family is so that you may live long in the land that the Lord is giving you. Now, let me give some context. The Ten Commandments, and in fact, the whole law in the Old Testament, were not given to us so that we could obey them and then God will like us. That's not how it works. We don't obey commandments, and then God likes us. You know what? God already likes us. He loves us. And what's happening here in Exodus is that God has delivered His people through a series of amazing events, and He helped them cross the Red Sea, and just God demonstrated His power and showed how much He loved His people. And what the Ten Commandments are is how to respond to God's love. That because God loves us so much, we want to live this way and show that love to everyone we know. And so the first four of the Ten Commandments are about how we love God back. And then the six of the remaining ten are about how we love others with the love God's put in our hearts. And so we move towards others all around us with God's love. And right in the middle is number five, honor your father and mother. And notice the purpose is that they can live long in the land. I think sometimes we read this from our culture and say, well, if I am a good kid and I obey my parents, I will live till I'm 85.7 years old. That's not what this is saying. It's plural, right? It's about a community. And what this means is that societies where children obey their parents tend to flourish. They tend to stay longer in the land. Let me explain why I think that's so. Kids, are you listening? Here it is. When you grow up in a family, 
your parents and your aunts and uncles and grandparents and everyone, they just pour love into you. They love you so much and you get an idea for how much God loves you and how much dignity you have and how valuable you are. You get love poured into you and so you have self-esteem and dignity. That's what a family does is it builds you up. But also what a family does, and at the same time, as you're being filled up with love, it teaches you not to hold on to that love, but to give it away. And in a family, you learn how to love others. And sometimes your mom and dad, they have to show you that. They have to make you do that. We call it, are you ready for this, kids? It's a hard word, perhaps the hardest word in the English language under the age of 10. Share. You have to share. That means you have to love other people. You have to think of others as, as important as yourself. And that's what families do. So families build us up with love, and then they teach us how to give it out back. They teach us how to be social uh, and how to have good behavior as a citizen. And so cultures that are doing that and valuing families are flourishing, and cultures that are not valuing families are unraveling. That's how it works. I, I remember watching a um, TED Talk a few years back. It had over a million views at the time. It was by a woman named Angela Patton, and it was called Camp Diva. And what she would do would be to get fathers who are in jail and connect them with their, particularly their daughters who were still living at home. And she would have behind prison bars these father-daughter dances where the little daughters could come even into the jail and they would have these amazing times with their daddies who were in prison. And Angela Patton said two things began to happen. And this is why she's so passionate about this and it's her full-time job. She says she noticed that when prisoners, especially dads, are connected to their families, the recidivism rate, that means, kids, that they, the, the number of times they go back into jail, it decreases massively. If a dad's connected to his family, it is less likely he'll end up in jail again. And the second reason that she does it is for the girl. Because what she saw was that when these little girls saw how much their daddy loved them, they began to make better choices around men in their own lives. A father was like a mirror telling a young girl what she's worth in terms of the men that she will be associated with. It's a very powerful ministry, but it just shows the importance of healthy families. So the first thing we want to say is the purpose of family is to help us live long lives as societies and help societies flourish. So how do we do that? How does the family help uh, societies flourish? Well, it's because of what a family is. Here is the plan for families. It's in Proverbs chapter 23. Here's what families do. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she's old. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Wisdom, instruction, and insight as well. The father of a righteous child has great joy, and a man who fathers a wise son rejoices in him. May your father and mother rejoice. May she who gave you birth be joyful. Now, what we want to see in terms of a family is what makes a family work. And there's two things to point out from this Scripture. 
The first is that uh, parenting relationship is a lifelong relationship. From the birth around a father to the death of the mother, as long as your parents are living, this is a lifelong relationship that is giving you life. Now, in our culture, there, there's, you know, what most people say makes a family is love. If, as long as you just love each other, you're family. And there's truth to that. That is very true, love. And in traditional cultures, it's more like blood and tradition make you family. And that's true too. There's something to be said about blood relations, you know, who you're actually related to, and traditions that you practice as a family. But the Scripture is more nuanced than that when it comes to the plan of a family. The Scriptures say what makes a family a family is covenant. It begins with the covenant of a husband and wife who, who lay down their lives for each other and honor one another and are interdependent on each other. And under that covenant is the shelter for the children that come. And uh, the children are sheltered by that covenant. And then the parents uh, make covenant even with their own children. It's this promise that's backed up by character that I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, we all know, we've all experienced this, that sometimes that marriage covenant, it doesn't work out. And that's hard, and sometimes it can be very broken, broken for a family. But yet, parents following Jesus still, even in that brokenness, remain committed to their children. They make promises to them, and they will care for them. And as long as they're alive, parents, they will love and care for their children. And while a marriage relationship, that covenant is to bring them to each other for the rest of their lives, what's hard about the parent commitment, right? We all know this, some of you gray hairs in the room or no hairs. The purpose of a parent covenant is to actually become sad. Sad because you're raising your children to leave your house. That's the hardest thing in the world for a parent. I'll never forget reading this, this section from uh, Wendell Berry in his novel, Hannah Coulter. To be the mother of a grown-up child means that you don't have a child anymore. And that is sad. When the grown-up child leaves home, that is sadder. I wanted Margaret to go to college, but when she actually went away, it broke my heart. Maybe if you had enough children, you get used to those departures, but having only three, I never did. I felt them like amputations. Something I needed was missing. Sometimes even now, when I come into this house and it sounds empty, before I think, I will wonder, where are they? And when they leave, I am sad to see them go, and I am sad that it should seem right that they should be gone. Mm. The emptiness of the empty nest we would honor this morning with all of us in this room and watching online. It's a lifelong commitment. But also, it's a lifelong learning community. Learning. If you go back to the Proverbs in 23, just notice the words that are there. Uh, instruction, wisdom, insight, righteousness. There's this idea that the job of a parent and the purpose of a family is to be a learning community where two things happen. And kids, I'm just going to let you in on the secret right now. You don't have to wonder anymore what your parents are doing with you. 
Here it is. You ready? They want you to have moral beliefs. They want you to know that there's a God and that He loves you and this is how the world works. They want you to have a faith. And then the other things they want you to do is is a worldview. And secondly, they want you to know, knowing how the world works, they want you to be wise about it and not go against the grain. So they're always trying to teach you these practical things about life. Like how things work and what you should be prepared for in life. That's what they're always trying to do for you. Have a worldview and, and have wisdom. So let's talk about each of one of those for a moment. I think, you know, in traditional cultures, it was a very strict disciplinarian approach and the father's authority, and you did this because it was family. In our more modern culture, I think what parents really want to do and the ultimate goal is to have happy children. But the problem is to have happy children, that's a really, really risk and a gamble, right? I mean, because usually you want to approach that, you just say, well, we'll just give them some boundaries, but they'll figure it out. They'll be happy. Self-discovery, all these things. But the problem is, and I think this is sometimes where our culture is a little out of alignment, is that every child is born a natural-born narcissist. Kids, your parents can explain that to you after the service, what that means. And it takes more than just some vague boundaries. It takes some hands-on uh, worldview and, and, uh, and so I, I think what happens sometimes is, well, let, let me talk about the happiness for a minute. I think, you know, it's very popular in our culture to do this, but even research is coming out to show you've got to have a bigger goal for your child in mind than happiness. So uh, there's this book called uh, All Joy and No Fun by Jennifer Senior. She's it's done off of Harvard Research. Uh, Jennifer Senior first, and we want to give a shout out to all the moms who have toddlers and babies at home. We want to honor you this morning as parents and children turn hearts to each other. Uh, Tara, if we could go to that. There it is. In 1971, a trio from Harvard observed 90 mother-toddler pairs for five hours and found that on average, mothers gave a command their child no, or fielded a request, often unreasonable or in a whining tone, every three minutes. Their children, in turn, obeyed on average of only 60% of the time. We all know, kids, you would do better on this survey. You, you would have spiked it. This is not exactly a formula for perfect mental health. Can we honor the moms of young kids in the room this morning? Wow. But here's the deal, right? Here's the deal. Next slide. Raising happy children, which is much about what our culture wants to do, is an elusive aim compared to the more concrete aims of parenting in the past. Creating competent children in certain kinds of work and creating morally responsible citizens who will fulfill a prescribed set of community obligations. The fact is, those bygone goals are probably more constructive and achievable. Not all children will grow up to be happy. In spite of their parents' most valiant efforts, and all children are unhappy somewhere along the way. So the wisdom of Scripture is, sure, you want your kids to have joy and be happy. Of course, that's just almost implied. But the way to do that is not to just let them be on their own and find happiness for themselves. No, the way to do that is to give them a worldview, share your beliefs with them, and teach them how the world 
works. Now, I know in our culture, some would push back on that and say, well, parents shouldn't force their worldview on, on kids. And again, the wisdom of Scripture is, well, not force and not be brutal and not beat them over the head with Bible kind of approach, but just conversationally, Deuteronomy 6, right? As you eat and as you travel and as you work, it's, it's a lifestyle of always letting God into conversations and just welcoming Him and your children together. It's that kind of thing. And the, the proof of that is a faith. Now, it's, there's no guarantee there's no guarantee that when a child grows up that he's going to choose that for his faith. And then you would ask, well, did the parent fail? No. A strong no. If a child grows up and on his or her own decides that's not the worldview for me, that is not a failure. In fact, I've watched when children lose respect for their parents. It's not when their parents have tried to share a worldview. It's when they've decided not to do anything with a worldview. Or it's when their parents are trying to share a worldview, but they're not living that worldview. That's when kids lose respect for their parents. And that's one of the axioms I always try to get in when we talk about parenting at Waterstone. Here's an axiom, Waterstone Parenting. By the time your kid gets to about age 35, they're going to be pretty much what you are. So shape up. <laughs> and buck up. That's really how parenting works. You pursuing Jesus as hard as you can. Your kids are watching. Now, there's this other, that's like the worldview piece. The other piece is, is this. Uh, your parents' kids are always trying to infuse wisdom into you. Things you're going to need for later in life. What they've done, you may not know this, kids, but they've been very very secretive about this. They've actually, when you're not present, they talk about you. And they sit at like dinner tables on these so-called dates. And what they're really doing is casting vision. And they're starting to talk about how when they get their first cell phone, this is how this is going to look. And they're talking about when you get your driver's license, how they're going to get people to get off the sidewalks. And then they're talking about how you're going when you have your first exposure to things on the computer that you shouldn't see. And when you have these uh, different kind of communities that Jesus loves, like the LBGTQ community, all these communities that Jesus loves, they want to teach you how to engage with those communities. So all the time, they're like talking about you. And they're trying to prepare for those moments. They're visionaries in your life. And then the other thing they're trying to do, actually, is to make sure when you hit speed bumps in life that you're ready for them. So here's a story from the Renault family. When my boys started to get to the age of driving, my son's kids, they're now like 31 and they're 28 and they have to shave. They're just like guys now. But when they were young and getting their driver's license, we had this tradition where I would take them out on a street and teach them how to change a tire because it's pretty certain you're going to have to know how to change a tire in your life. And so I decided, I didn't do Wadsworth or Bowles. Those are way too busy. We went out in Elkire over here by the church and we pretended like a tire went flat. We pulled the car over. I changed the tire the first time and I had them one at a time watch and then they had to go do it themselves. Now, I won't say which boy this was, but he watched me and then he tried to do it and he jacked the car up. And then he tried to get the lug nuts. Those are the nuts, the bolts that hold the tire onto the car. And he started cranking on him. And so all the parents, all the adults in the room, what's wrong with that scenario? If a car's jacked up 
and you start cranking on the lug nuts, the car is going to fall off the jacket. It could fall and hurt you. So I said, stop! You know, and we had to start over. You take the lug nuts, loosen them while the car's on the ground. I hope some of you parents are learning something here this morning, by the way. <laughs> you, know. you loosen the nug nuts, the nug nuts, the lug nuts, <laughs> beef. <laughs> I would, see, and we don't have a 1030 service to correct all this, Billy. What are we going to do here? You loosen the lug nuts, and then you jack the car up. And so to this day in the Renault house, sometimes, and they're now 31 and 28, and they'll think of something, oh, mom and dad, they taught us that. And they'll say to me, yeah, that's lug nuts right there, isn't it? That's lug nuts. <laughs> Kids, your parents want to give you 100 lug nut moments so that you are ready for the things, the unexpected things that life's going to come. So... That's the purpose of family, that societies flourish. The plan for family is a lifelong learning community where your parents are teaching you how to have faith and how to be prepared for life. That's what they're doing all around you all the time. But th the last part is about how does this work? What's the power to make this work? So I want to talk to kids for just a minute here, and then I want to talk to big kids for a minute. Little kids, smaller kids, kids still living at home. I'm glad you don't, I hope you don't have anything to throw at me. But when the, God says, honor your father and mother, he picks that up again in Ephesians 6. We won't read it, you can read it. But what that means for kids still living at home is you honor your father and mother, here it is, by obeying your father and mother. You obey them. Kids, you want to say amen to that? <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> obey. You see, what you do when you obey is you honor God by saying, I believe in my parents. Even though my parents seem like the strictest parents on the whole street, even though my parents say no to me sometimes, even though my parents even at times get really excited about things that you didn't think they would get excited about, your parents love you and they're trying to give you faith and trying to help you be good at life. And so the best thing you can do, even when you don't agree, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have your parents explain maybe why. But ultimately, you obey. That's how kids honor their parents. And then for the rest of us in the room, if we still have parents living, that word honor is an interesting word choice, right? Because when you're out from your parents' house, you're not under their authority, not living with them day to day, notice that uh, Moses and Paul don't say that you need to love your parents. Notice they don't say you need to obey your parents. No, when you're an adult, you need to honor your parents. It's an interesting word because it's a word that's really not emotional. It's a word that's a spiritual discipline. Kavod is the Hebrew word, and it means to make room for something or to give weight to someone. It's actually a word for worship or glory that you'll often see it in Scripture. So those of us with still living parents, what you do to honor them is you make room for them in your life. You give weight. Now, 
For some of us in our parent relationship, anything that does have emotion or love, that's going to be very hard because of your parents' choices, because of the fracturing of relationship. So maybe for you, honoring means praying for them. Praying for God to meet them, to help them. Maybe that's what honoring looks like for you. You're making room in your life for them, but maybe it's just prayer. For I hope a lot of us in this room, what honoring our parents means is more like giving them credit for the good things they did. Maybe you, you boast about them on f- Facebook and social media even though they never read it. Maybe you write them letters each year on their birthdays. Maybe you, I'm telling you, as a parent of grown men, when you get a text from your grown kid, it makes a good day. Can I, is there an amen on that in the house? Just a word from your kid is an orbit of joy. Make room for your parents, however you can do it. Getting together, eating together, all of that. Now, for something, and as we get ready to to turn here a little bit, this, the best thing we can do for our parents is to grow up. (laughs) Now, that sounds really blunt, right? Really harsh. uh, I think all of us come out of our childhood with wounds, we, either things that were done to us that were mistakes and shouldn't have happened, or I think the other part is deficits, right? Things we never got from our parents that we wanted. And we come out of our childhood and we hold on to those until we meet Jesus. The Jesus who turns parents to children and children to parents. And what he does is when Jesus was with us in John 17, he actually prayed and we see his heart. He said, Father, I'm your only natural son down here and I know you love me, but now what I want you to do, Father, is love all of them like you love me. Love all of them like you love me. Do you know what that's called, kids? Adoption. God the Father adopts you and you are a child of the Father in heaven. And to the degree, everyone, to the degree that that lights up our heart, that that brings joy to us, that we're a son or a daughter of God is the degree that we can turn and honor our parents and make room for them because our love is full from the Father so we can turn and love even those who are hard to love. I've seen this again. I've seen it and so have you. Just adult kids still dragging around wounds from their childhood and it's bringing them down and it's actually made them bitter. And we want Jesus to heal that. I've also seen parents who had such a good childhood that they actually idolized their parents and everything in them is trying to recreate their childhood and be nostalgic. And that can be wrong too. That can be unattainable. No, we need to understand that Jesus wants us adopted and our hearts full of the Father's love and then we can love and honor our parents. That radio interview with Michael Card and Brennan Manning, I didn't tell you how it ended. Here's how it ended. 
I prayed with Sister Genevieve for several minutes for healing. Then I asked her, Sister, would you be willing for the next month to go to a quiet place every morning, sit down in a chair, close your eyes, and pray this over and over, Abba, that's Dad, I belong to you. Pray this until it becomes a heartfelt cry in your heart. Pray it at the beginning of the day when you get up. Pray it when you're walking across the street. Pray it when you're driving your car. Pray it when you're eating a meal. Pray it when you're sitting in church. When you do pray this a dozen times a day, you will, as Jesus says in Luke 18, pray all day long and never lose heart. Well, I asked the nun if she would try it, and she said yes. She promised to sit and pray, Abba, I belong to you. Two weeks later, Brennan Manning received the most moving poetic letter he'd ever gotten in ministry. This old woman described the inner healing of her heart, the complete forgiveness of her father, and inner peace that she'd never known before. And she ended her letter this way. A year ago, I would have signed this letter with my real name in my religious life, Sister Mary Genevieve. But from now on, I'm just Abba's little girl. To as many as received Him, Jesus gave them the power to become the sons and daughters of God. You can have that power right now. So as we come to the table of the Lord, what I'd like you to do is just take a few moments in quiet. Kids, you too, all of us, and just pray like this, Abba, I belong to You. Let's pray that together in the silent moment. Abba, I belong to You. We come now to the table of the Lord and this time with our Heavenly Father. Do any of you need communion? If you raise your hand, we have some ushers in the back that would get you communion. Just raise your hand if you need some. Our Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread. He said, this bread represents my body which is given for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup and He said, this cup represents my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So let us pray. Lord, thank you that you turn hearts to our parents and that you turn hearts to our children. We pray that Waterstone would be a place of family where the generations are in love with each other and moving towards one another. And we pray that even in spite of a recent decision in the Supreme Court, that Waterstone would be a place that loves more babies and adopts them. That Waterstone would be a place where older grandparents and older uh, 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 adults among us are looking for kids to adopt as grandkids and to love families, young families. And we pray for young families who want older to speak into their lives, that you'd move the generations to one another. We pray we'd be a place of family where the generations love. And then, Lord, and finally, we pray that this would be a place, no matter 